Disclaimer before today's episode, everything discussed here is gossip and hearsay. I am not involved in this case. I do not know the individuals that I'm talking about, and they are all innocent until proven guilty, and I have no involvement with any of them or this case. So everything discussed is theory and not based in fact or truth. Your mom's a swoof. My name is Sarah Jones, and this is my podcast, Your Mom's a Sleuth, where I talk about everything from murder to motherhood. Listen in as I give you the details you haven't heard on the news yet, right here on Your Mom's a Sleuth. Hello, you guys. Welcome back to Your Mom's a Sleuth. This is episode seven, The Emma B Conspiracy. Holy cow, I can't even believe that. I I don't know where the time has gone. It's just this has been like such a crazy time of year. So I apologize. I actually said in my last cast, it's not going to be six weeks till the next episode. And here we are. It's like eight weeks later. <laughs> so I was kind of right. But sorry about that. We have a lot of ground to cover. And I am really excited because I finally have some information popping about the Idaho case that is scandalous, scary, juicy, and I don't know if it's going to be talked about at trial or not, but big things are happening. So here we go. I'm going to dive right in with first a little bit of housekeeping. We've got a scheduling hearing coming up on May 22nd. That's less than a week, y'all. And thank God my children are going to be in school because it is being live streamed. And it's just a scheduling hearing, but there is a little bit of back and forth going on between the attorneys regarding what is being handed over in discovery. And that is sort of where some of this juice lies. Not the big stuff, but there is some interesting information in there if you read between the lines. So the attorneys have been going back and forth on discovery motions basically since he was arrested. And if you don't know what discovery is, I'll give you a quick explanation. Sidebar, a <laughs> little lawyer joke there. I'm, I'm not a lawyer. That's my sidebar. I'm not an attorney. I don't know everything, but I know what I know. I've um, been in, involved in legal stuff before, so I know a little bit about this, but I've never been involved in a criminal case, obviously. So this is just based on my research and understanding of what this stuff all means. So when Brian Koberger was arrested and they said they're going to go to trial, there's a whole lot of evidence that the prosecution has against him. And Brian's attorneys have a right to see some of that evidence. So what they do is they make a request for discovery. The discovery is all of the evidence. So they, whatever they request, if it pertains to the case and, you know, it's believed that that's going to help him, the prosecution has to hand it over. So the initial request for discovery was redacted mostly. So we didn't get to see what specific items they requested. However, in my experience, when there's a request for discovery, the attorney will literally ask for everything, anything and everything you could possibly think of, because you want to just cover all the bases in case it's, you know, there's something, some little nugget of something that could be what they call exculpatory evidence. Exculpatory meaning it would 
prove that he is innocent. So they are going to leave no stone unturned and literally ask for everything. So we didn't get to see that initial request, but I want to tell you that because we're up now to the third request and they're getting into more specific stuff that has not been redacted. But I don't get too alarmed because it's like, I think they're reaching any little thing that they could find that could help prove, hey, this evidence, it shouldn't be allowed in court because this person who's working at this lab has three infractions in their personnel file. I mean, it's that level of a deep dive looking for evidence. So like I said, we're up to the third request. So they made an initial request and then in the end of January, the prosecution did reply with a certain amount of evidence. It, it says it's about a thousand photographs or so and a thousand pages of documents. I'm sorry, 1800 photographs. And basically the prosecution said, Hey, we responded. This is the stuff that we gave you, but they, I mean, they don't show it. They just say, Hey, remember those thousand pages that we gave you and those 1800 photographs and those audio files and video files we gave you? That's the evidence. So then they came back again and said in March and said, no, we want everything that you have. And the prosecution came back and said, look, in January, we gave you everything we have. So now we're at the third request for discovery. And basically, they're trying to force the judge to compel them to give literally everything they have. And now they start asking for very specific things. I go back and forth between, does this stuff really exist? Are they just asking for it in case it exists? We're not really sure. But one thing really did come out of it that was interesting. They have asked for any files, recordings, paperwork associated with the interrogation of Brian Koberger. Why is that interesting? Well, it's interesting because it shows that it definitely was beyond, hey, Brian, did you commit these murders? I'd like an attorney. Thank you. I'm done speaking to you. That is what it shows. There was some sort of interrogation that happened enough that they would have taken notes, that there would be video of it, that something was said. So that's the first time we're hearing that. And that I find very, very interesting you know, there is an interrogation video out there. He did say something to police beyond get me an attorney. Another thing they're really going for here, which I also find interesting, it's maybe it points to their strategy. They are asking for the personnel files, resumes, performance evaluations for police officers involved in this, laboratory personnel, basically anybody who's been involved in the handling of evidence, who was around the evidence, who anybody who had anything to do with this case, they want their entire background. And I'm, I feel like that's reaching, but it just points to the absolute thoroughness of Brian Koberger's attorneys. They are not just saying, hey, dude, there's enough evidence here to convict you. Like you should probably cop a plea deal or do something to uh, make this go away. They are really, really trying to find every single thing that could help him in this case. That's very interesting. And I know, you know, they have to do that. That's that's his right. He ha- They have to give him as fair a shot as possible. But the court of public opinion seems to think that he is 200% guilty and like enough with this charade already. But they're really trying to prove his innocence here. So I strongly believe that he's not going to make a plea. 
in June, I think that he is going to put up a hell of a fight. Maybe even a fight that leaves us somewhat doubting. And I really never thought I would say that. So expect some sort of ruling or statement about that at the streamed hearing on May 22nd. That is less than a week away. Oh my God. I might host like streaming parties this summer for this trial because that is how excited. I can't believe how fast the time has gone by, but it's going to get really interesting really fast. So what is that back channel stuff that's been going on? What are the kids saying on TikTok and Reddit and Facebook? What's everybody talking about? Okay, you guys brace yourselves because there's a bit of a bombshell going on. Something has happened recently, which has blown the lid off of the dark undercurrent that goes on really in most college towns, but now specifically in this town. Moscow, Idaho, what has been described to me as a sleepy farming town with a nice university in it. I'm going to go and say baloney, baloney. There is some dark stuff happening here. So let's get to it. Now, if you'll recall, we all know that there were five roommates in this house. So we've got Maddie, Kaylee, and Zena, right? And then Ethan was there that night. He was not a roommate. So we've got those three girls who are uh, deceased. Then the surviving two roommates who are going to be critical in this trial are Bethany and Dylan. Okay, now there was a sixth roommate on this lease. And I don't know if you all remember that. It kind of came out like bombshell. Oh, sixth roommate. But she had recently moved out or didn't live there for a while. And that was the confusion on why Dylan was on the second floor. She had recently moved into that bedroom. So I don't know if it was not known that she was in there. And that was the whole thing. But remember when that came out and was like, oh my God, Dylan was on the same floor that the murders took place on. That's crazy. That's because everybody thought she was on the bottom floor and that that was an empty bedroom that this sixth roommate had recently moved out of. That sixth roommate has a name, and it is Ashlyn Couch. Ashlyn Couch is friends, acquaintances, whatever you want to call it. They have some photographs together, so I'm going to go ahead and call them friends. She is friends with a girl named Emma Bailey. Remember this name because you are going to hear it quite a bit. Emma Bailey, who also was friendly with all the roommates, lives in a house behind King Road, where the murders took place. Emma Bailey also happens to be a DoorDash driver. A DoorDash driver who moonlights as a drug dealer and recently was arrested with her boyfriend because the drugs that they dealt ended up killing a young man named Caden Young. That young man is a University of Idaho student, and they were arrested on March 23rd of this year for dealing him the drugs, which eventually killed him. So somebody took it upon themselves to go to the, was it Jack in the Box where she ordered from? The place where Zaina ordered her DoorDash from. And they interviewed the people that work there I think unbeknownst to them, I'm not sure if that's legal, everybody, but anyways, there is a recording of it. And they say that the DoorDash driver who delivered Zana's food the night of the murders 
At almost the exact same time police say Brian Koberger arrived was Emma Bailey. Emma Bailey, door dasher, friend of the victims, and drug dealer, who is dating a violent criminal drug dealer named Demetrius, Demetrius Robinson. Demetrius Robinson's social media handle is, are you ready, everybody? Papa Proper. I, I, I can't make this up. So if you're following me here, <laughs> it would appear as though there were two criminals there at the time of the murder, at least. This DoorDash driver, who is a known drug dealer, it is confirmed in interviews with students, she and her boyfriend, Demetrius, are known to be dealers to the community. She was there at the time of the murder. And not only that, the Moscow Police Department does not list the DoorDash driver, in quotes, as a person of interest who has been cleared on their list of people who've been cleared, which they have a website for where they say the Uber driver has been cleared, the food truck people have been cleared, the guy at the food truck has been cleared. They don't list the DoorDash driver. Can this possibly be a coincidence? I know in small towns, even in university towns, they you know that could still be a small town. This is a small university. I know like everybody knows each other, but what the heck are the chances of this? And also, some of these people are saying in interviews, like it was kind of known that the girls would pretty much always have substances on them. And if you wanted some, you could just Venmo them and they'd give it to you. So it's not like they were considered drug dealers, but they always had stuff that they were willing to give to you if you wanted to pay them for it. I mean, that's how it was described in this interview. And I'm like, well, a little bit of a drug dealer, a little bit of dabbling, but whatever. I'm I'm not a drug person, so I don't really know how this works, but it's a... <laughs> It's just a little bit I'm laughing at myself. I'm not a drug person. I don't know. I don't I don't do drugs. I don't buy drugs from people. So I don't really know how it works. But it's it would seem as though they always had some sort of supply that people could rely on them for. And what the person said in the interview that I listened to, uh, and their voice was distorted. So you have no idea who this person is. Uh, but they seem to know a heck of a lot about the community and this group of friends was basically that if somebody thought that there was um, a large amount of drugs and cash in that house that they could say, you know what, we're going to hit that house up for whatever they've got. There was enough in that house that students initially thought maybe there was an overdose that happened at this house, that that was entirely plausible, but not enough that they thought like, oh, they got taken out for being drug dealers. Does I, that makes sense to me? Hopefully, that makes sense to you. So basically, they usually had a good amount of drugs around, but not enough that you know people considered them to be like drug dealer, major drug dealers. This Emma Bailey is uh, really known for that, and she was arrested in February for a DUI. And this is interesting because in that video. She first tells police that she doesn't have a cell phone. She lost her cell phone at the club. And then the police find her phone in her car. And by the way, she's got like two passed out people in the car. And they're like, are your friends okay? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you guys just have to get them rides home. But like her friends are clearly very out of it, either just like totally wasted or totally high on drugs. So 
they find her cell phone in the car and they're like, is this the phone that you've been saying that you don't have? And she's like, oh my God, I thought I lost that at the club. And they're like, okay, yeah, whatever. So they arrest her for the DUI. And then in the, uh, there's like a room that she's sitting in. I don't know if it's an interrogation room. I'm not really, I don't, you don't get interrogated when you have a DUI, but she was sitting in some sort of holding room and she appears to remove drugs at some point. She's got like her hands cuffed and she, I don't know if her hands are cuffed actually, but anyways, she grabs a tissue off the table and she appears to remove drugs from somewhere in the backside of her body. That's all I'm going to say. And then, I don't know, she she either removed drugs or she had to clean herself up. Let's just put it that way, because something weird happened. And then you hear something go into the trash can and not a tissue, like something with weight. Okay, very bizarre. And so a lot of people are saying that maybe she hid drugs on herself and she was getting rid of them. Not the smartest place to get rid of them, but okay, whatever. Um, And that was during her DUI arrest back in February. And fast forward just one month later, and she is arrested for drug dealing and providing drugs, which killed this Caden Young student. And Caden, interestingly, follows Steve Gonsalves on Instagram, and Steve follows Caden. If you're still following me, Steve Gonsalves is Kaylee's father. So that's kind of weird. Why are they following each other? So that's interesting. They know each other. And he doesn't appear to follow the girls, just Steve. So did Caden Young, the student who overdosed in March, know something that he was talking to Kaylee's father about? We don't know. That's a very interesting friendship and a very interesting coincidence. And again, I say this town must be extremely small for all of these people to know each other. I'm just really, really skeptical about all of this. This feels like way too many coincidences. And I'm afraid that a not so pretty picture is going to be painted here of what was going on in this house. I, with the way that the defense is gunning for evidence, they are not going to let all of this stuff slide. And what the heck is with Emma Bailey's boyfriend, Demetrius Robinson, calling himself Papa Proper? What do you guys make of that? I I mean, that's like a pretty sick joke. Uh, if it's intended to be funny, I don't really understand. But he is a violent criminal with a very violent history of um, attacking people and kidnapping and just, I mean, he's a scary, scary dude. And uh, I don't know, it's an interesting friendship, an interesting relationship, very interesting connections. And I'm, I'm gonna be extremely interested to see if any of this comes up at trial. I'd love to know what you guys think, if you think that this holds water in any way, shape, or form. I am not trying to victim blame. Let's be clear. You know, college kids doling out drugs to their friends do not deserve to be brutally murdered. Some people are implying that it's some kind of a cover-up, but I'm pretty sure they would have done something. I, I don't know. That, that, that can't be true, because Zayna fought back, and I, I'm pretty sure they did toxicology tests, Although I know we haven't seen the results of those. 
everything has been under wraps uh, since that all happened. But we're going to find out very, very soon what the results of all of that is and what went on in this house. You'll remember that uh, we had that podcast from Olivia. Oh, God, I think that was in February. And I really discounted what her witness said about all of the students being in the house the morning of the murders before the police, that there were maybe 15, 20 kids there before the police even got there, and that they sort of did a cleanup of the house. And I thought, wow, how could that many kids keep a secret? How could that many kids go through a house and have it undetected by police and be so careful and be able to see their friends brutally murdered? I don't know. Maybe there is some truth to that now. Maybe there was something bigger going on here that they had to cover up. And maybe that is why it took so long for the police to be called. We don't know. What the heck was going on in that house? Here's a theory. And it's just a theory. And again, I guess I just have to clarify that everything on here is speculation. I don't have any proof of any of this stuff. This is mere gossip. Okay. Here's a theory. What if Brian Koberger was aware that Emma and Demetrius were drug dealers and that there were typically 3 or 4 a.m. DoorDash deliveries going on on the weekends to this house? And what if he made himself uh, scarce until the delivery had completed and then immediately went in? What if this is some sort of attempt on Koberger's part to frame the drug dealers in this crime, but he failed miserably. I don't know. Because if he had not left that sheath behind, and they had done more investigating on the DoorDash driver, who still has not been cleared, maybe they might have put it on the DoorDash driver. And maybe that's why there's such a huge gag order going on here and protection of witnesses. And everybody's kind of like, this is not, this is not seeming like a normal situation. We're not hearing from people on the news. Nobody's talking. Everybody seems to be terrified. What is going on? Something bigger, guys. Something bigger is happening here. I promise you, this is going to be explosive. I'm sure of it now. And whether Koberger was trying to frame the drug dealers or they work together, somehow this is all going to be related. This murder makes no sense. It hasn't from the beginning. So you start putting these factors in and it starts making sense. I know I'm getting all excited and this is, this is the part of it that really drives me to do things like this because I want to know the story. I want to know why the extreme waste of human life and potential. Um, this is what drives me. And I know we're going to find it all out and the police already know and the attorneys already know, but my little empath heart wants to know and I want to know now and I don't want to wait until the scheduled trial date. So that's all I have for you guys today. I'm going to try and do these shorter episodes so that I can do them more often. I do want to eventually talk about this case in Oklahoma, the Oklahoma 7. Hit that up on Google if you want to really dive into something interesting. I plan on doing another mini episode about that. There's too much about that to share on here today, especially with all of this conspiracy that's going on. And it is just that, a conspiracy theory. Um, And uh, I 
I want to hear what you guys think. Please let me know on Instagram. Let me know on TikTok if you believe that this is all related or just a coincidence. If this is just normal college town stuff, you know, that there's 20 different people they could have run into on a daily basis that could have been involved in this type of activity. I don't know. I'm not naive. I've been to college. I understand. But I just, this is just way too much coincidence for me. And in the true crime school of thought, there's no such thing as coincidence. So let me know. Hit me up. And I just want to say thank you for continuing to listen. Thank you for all of the praise and support and uh, making me feel like a hometown celeb. (laughs) I really appreciate it. It's what pushes me to sit down and record, you know, when I when I keep telling myself that it's nonsense. This feels like the little podcast that could. I'm super excited about it. And get ready because things are about to ramp up around here with these trial dates looming. All right. Thanks, everybody. Please remember to be safe and careful. Thanks for tuning in. Good luck out there in the wild. Bye.